You're listening to Frankly Earnest, hosted by Sam Christie, co-host and producer, Allie Hall. episode I might open us up um and I think the recording will catch my video it's got the little blue bubble around me so I think it's recording me so um hi everybody and um yeah so today's episode we are going to talk about some hard topics I know a lot of this is all hard topics um we're gonna dive deeper into some of Sam's traumatic events and we're also going to talk about some coping strategies because we've had some listeners reach out and ask how do you cope through all this what's a day-to-day coping strategy look like for you and yeah you know we go down rabbit holes we'll start there and keep going on so um Wow, this episode sounds intense, Allie. Yeah, this episode is intense. That's good. I'm Let me say it again. Stop. Stop, honey. If you're going to be out here, you have to be quiet. Okay, I can't look over there. There's secrets over there. I can't even oh, turn the camera. Oh, ask her it's what's going on with my thing. I can't. No, I can't ask any questions. She's... I was told to look away and that there are things that are not for me to see in the living room. And I don't know about you, but when I walk into the room, my significant other says, don't look at this. It's not what it looks like. I just believe them and turn away. That's the best thing to do. I don't know what's going on in there. Oh, what a cute little corgi. She's a corgi palm. A corgi palm. Wow. Tell me, tell me you're a white lady without telling me you're a white lady. I rescued her. Of course you did. Of course. I did. She was at a neglectful house. Was she? They were neglecting her? Yeah, and I went there and I was like, I will take her off your hands. I will take care of her very well. And they were like, sure, take the dog. They wanted nothing to do with her. Well, there are times when she's kind of problematic for the podcast. But I think if we put her on camera more like this, <laughs> she'll, she'll be happy. You, you know, said you're I, problematic for the podcast. All right. I cannot look in the living room. That's all I can tell you about whatever it is you two are cooking up. Um, I am not allowed to look. Is it something I'm cooking up? I don't know. I don't know the secrets. You guys are being all sneaky and hiding stuff from me, and I just have to accept that. You know, I can't know everything. Yeah. It's it's not even fun to try to know everything. Yeah. And I've tried. Oh, my God. 
Have you ever heard that joke? Um, I used to tell it when I was a husband. I'd say, you know, my wife always wanted to meet Mr. Wright. She just didn't know that his first name was going to be always. Oh. And the funny thing is, is it was kind of, you know, I would tell it. But it's it's like when the when the narcissist uh, in the room makes a joke about how they're a narcissist. It's really not funny. Yeah. Yeah. No, I oh, get that Sammy, now. Sammy just texted me. Yeah, it is my thing. Oh! What? What? Oh, you guys are doing... So Allie and Allie's conspiring with my girlfriend <laughs> to, to make some sort of... Or accomplish some sort of surprise for me. I have no idea if it's an animal, animal mineral, uh, or intangible object or vegetable. I have no clue. Is it a moment they're creating? Is it a new tattoo? Is it my dream car? So I think we might give it to you today at the end of today's episode. What? Yeah, so. I'm going to get a surprise at the end. This is so exciting. All right, so I hope everybody's on board. This is such a fun episode already because I'm not exactly sure what we're about to discuss because I'm kind of absent-minded, but I've we've already been prepped that it's going to be hard topics, abuse, and coping strategies, and at the end, I get a reward. This reminds me a lot of going to the dentist when I was a kid. I hated it. But they had that toy board, and I knew if I just sat still through a little more pain all the way to the end, then I could go get one of those balsa wood airplanes or one of those little styrofoam ones that you shoot with a rubber band. I usually got the airplane. Do you remember toys at the dentist? I do. This is going to be better than a toy at the dentist, and hopefully, um, you know, hopefully not as painful. This is going to be good. Okay. It's going to be a good one. Right and on. It, I'm not I'll scared. Tell, I'll tell all of it later. So we've got some business to talk about. All right. Let's talk business. Sam is coming to New York. Oh, my God. I'm coming to New York. I am coming to New York yes. to Cortland. Cortland, New York. And he is going to be talking at the State University of New York at Cortland. And it's going to be in collaboration with Safer Students Active for Ending Rape. And it was really, really an amazing feat to be able to do this. It's such, you know, an honor to have Sam be able to come and be a part of what they're doing here at Cortland. And I am so excited. And the third, we're going to have him. So the second, he's going to talk. The third, he's going to be at Innovation Day where we're going to meet maybe some of our maybes, um, people that we might hire in the future or just talk to. Oh people. my God. Yeah. It's, I'm so excited. Business. I'm so excited. A chance and, to, um, yes, it's going to be exciting because there's going to be a lot of students there and they're going to want to know, how did I start this with you? You know, they're going to want to know all the ins and outs of what it was like being a student and getting this off the ground with someone like you, who was already an entrepreneur of your own with your own business. And, <laughs> you know, I, yeah, sort of, I, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. I've always kind of approached, I've been in self-employed situations, made brave business moves. Um, won and lost, uh, you know, a couple of mini fortunes. 
It, it it's exciting. Very for someone who's 23, you know, yeah, and yeah. maybe younger who's a student and they're like, wow, I've yeah. got a college bill to pay this month. How am I going to pay to invest in a business? But sometimes it doesn't have to be like that. Yeah. So and many people, like to it's pay. easy to find the stories of people who um, do the thing that nobody thought of doing or nobody thought would work and then it works. Mm-hmm. Now, it, I don't think that, I don't believe in the American dream. Um, you know, we can't, you know, maybe we can, but we're going to have to reshape our whole society for each of us to be able to follow um, our dreams and, and build the kind of life we want to have, as yeah. opposed to just working for somebody else. Because when you're working at a job, and, the, and so my dad always taught me to be self-employed when I was a kid. He was self-employed, probably because he couldn't work with anybody else. But there is a, I can work with people, but there's a frustration with working with a job. And that is, you're always, you know, in the large, largest sense, most Americans are always a few months away from being homeless and destitute and a few paychecks away, perhaps. And, and no American with a job is a few paychecks or a few months away from striking it rich. No matter how good you do at your job, no matter how good the company does, you're never going to get that bonus. And back when we were fishing, when I was fishing with my dad, we were poor. Oh my God, we didn't have any money. Like we'd, we'd have enough gas money to get home, but not enough to get down to the boat basin again. And that's, that's it, like no cash. So we would go out in the, in the woods because we lived on the property and we'd cut up wood and, uh, you know, use the last little bit of our gas to limp to a, a place to sell some, some redwood, uh, old shingle bolts and stuff like that, fence posts. And it was hard work. And then we'd make like 50 bucks off the wood. And my dad was impulsive. And so we'd have pizza and beer and spend most of the money, but we'd have enough to put in the tank to get back to the boat. And, and then we'd hope that when we went out on the boat, we caught enough fish. Right. And we lived like that for years, uh, including some trips to my grandmother where he would pressure her for some money. But he was, he was actually reluctant to do that. Like he was, he, it was shitty, but I mean, even he probably knew he could only push it so far. Um, but he would go over there and, and press her and, you know, threaten to cause a public stink and get his name in the paper if, uh, if he didn't have a little money and she'd give him a little money, just a little, just a little to get us through. But then, so the thing with being self-employed though, is every once in a while when you're fishing, you have a day where the boat just makes $2,000 for you or a trip where you, or a season where you finish and, and there, and all of a sudden my dad had money in the bank, you know? Um, and I, I, you know, so you can't, you can't have a big magical fishing day at your job. There's no day where the boss is going to come in and say, Oh my God, you really did it for the company. Here's an extra two grand. You know, that, that's nobody, hardly anybody gets that in, in the workplace in America, you know? So there's no incentive. Hardly anybody gets treated nicely. Yeah. There's no incentive in, in wage, wage, wage labor is, is slave labor. Oh, I I took a a course (laughs) on literature of the great depression last semester. I could tell you all about what's wrong with labor in America. Like I'm signing up for wage labor next week to make a little money, right? Yeah. And um, and I don't have a job. I haven't had a job since uh, August. I've done temp work since in in the interim. But then I've also kind of lived off my savings, 
so that I could tell my story these last several months. And it's helped me to get the podcast going with you. It's helped me to get TikTok going. Um, because when I start telling these stories, I enter into a mental space, which makes it even harder for me to function in my regular life. And so in the past, like I started telling in 2010 and back then I couldn't keep a job for a year. I would have some sort of conflict with the boss. And as soon as I started telling my story, those conflicts got more difficult. I lost houses. I lost relationships. I ended up kind of homeless and couch surfing. I mean, I never lived on the street. I always had somewhere to go because I, you know, my teeth are still okay. And I'm, you know, kind of charming. Um, and I can still fix stuff. So, you know, there's always somewhere for me to go, I guess. Um, but it was, they were hairy times. And, and I started to realize every time I go to write some more about my story, every time I go to tell more, it takes this toll. It opens up stuff that like a feeling inside that, that suddenly gets in the way of, of everything functional that I was going to do. <laughs> so I have, I've been unwilling to get a, um, a wage slave job uh, during this time. So next week I'm, I'm sort of signing up for it to go be, um, um, uh, I told the lady I'll be her dynamic contractor. She's doing a lot of stuff around her house and she has a little bit of money and she's decided to hire me for a whole week. And if we can remodel a bathroom and maybe change some other things while I'm there, maybe work on her deck, you know, but I'm just signed up for 40 hours of work because that's how much money she has to put into this. And I don't even know what we're doing yet. And so I've signed up to just be there for the whole 40 hours. And no matter how good a job I get, I won't make any more. So that's, I'm charging her $40 an hour, hmm. Damn. which, which you can do when you're self-employed. And if, I mean, if you're making 10, 10, $12 an hour and your boss is ever contracting you out on a job he's billing your boss is billing 50 or 60 an hour for you and you know sure crying about you know how they have to pay taxes and all that you know but the big math picture is that bosses make more off you than you take home generally hmm. so folks that don't do your job are making as much as you because you're doing your job and i mean the really efficient companies just have a few people at the top who are getting gravy rich off a bunch of poor people who can't afford to do anything else. Hmm. Ah, sorry. All right. This is, this is what I rant about. This is what um, we need to talk about. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about some hard stuff with you. I want to ask you oh. some questions. Um, some people have had some questions on TikTok and replying to some of the story before. They really want to know about Sandy and that. Yeah. That. Um, and there's yeah. other stuff we'll get to at the end. Some questions about the coping mechanisms. We've, we've got some questions coming in. People want to know, Sam. They, they want the answers. I hear you. We can talk um, about Sandy. Um, but Sandy, yeah. Um, yeah. What, what, was, what was that like? How did... How did Sandy meet Ernie? How did, who is Sandy? How did that transpire? Can you walk us through that? Yes. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. Um, so, you know, when I go to talk about Sandy, it's such a, it's such a huge, 
um, kind of still happening event in my head, like all of the stuff. I have a narrative. And of course, when I called the sheriff, it was pretty easy for me to report the narrative of what happened. And, and I want to do that today, but I also, because it's my podcast, I, I want to make a little space for myself right here at the beginning just to, I mean, I'm sure people understand this, you know, um, but for me, um, talking about Sandy is really challenging. And I, I guess, I guess that's obvious because people commend me for doing it. Um, but it, it is hard and, um, it's hard to think about her when I did the, the interview for investigation discovery last September, they, um, they had a second day that they didn't want to pay me for. And, and they just said, uh, you know, we're just going to look at some photos, you know, and have you, uh, you know, kind of identify which photos were from what time and all that. And instead what happened was we spent a whole day, um, doing tough interview questions just to, you know, wrap up. And then, and then we, and then they brought out all these photos and wanted to film my reaction to the photos. And they, and they were all my photos except the last one, which was just a picture of Sandy. And I didn't know that was coming. I didn't know we were going to be talking about it. And I'm really grateful that, that they didn't include the footage from my reaction to the photo. Um, just because, you know, they kind of like broke into a place of where I feel deep sorrow and deep regret. I, I feel so... Like, I don't, it's hard for me to feel like Sandy wouldn't judge me, wouldn't hate me and, and feel like I should have saved her. You know what I mean? Like, I feel so much survivor guilt about Sandy and they took me kind of there in the interview. So, um, and maybe, you know, I can't help, but, you know, feel some of that. So I'm, I'm going to try to, though, to kind of frame the story for you. Um, I, I want to make sure that you know, though, that that's you do know already, but just to validate you, because sometimes people need a third person perspective to hear it. Like, thank it's you. Totally normal to have that survivor go, you know, but yeah. the, like throughout hearing all of it, every time I've talked to you about any of this or listen to you talk about it, it's not your fault. You know, you yeah. did, you did everything you could. Every time that Ernie challenged you with something. Um, so, you know, my dad met Sandy the way that he met any woman. You know, he, he wasn't really good at, like, talking to people <laughs> um, or meeting new people. Um, so he kind of stuck to putting on a show when he could in front of the people that he had already kind of groomed to accept his his outlandish behavior. So if he was down at the bar around people that were used to hearing him yell and scream and shoot people's cars up, then he felt a little bolder with any new person that walked in the room. But if he went with my grandmother to church, he didn't know how to just breathe and relax and, and talk to people. And, you know, he had to be all the time. He was all the time trying to defend his, his ego, his honor, you know, all the time. And except in like these rare moments where he would, if he didn't feel threatened in his ego, then he could be a very kind person, you know, like if, um, if an older person with a cane or a walker was heading toward a door, 
my dad would beat other people over there to open the door for that person and hold it for them while they walked through, huh. you know? Um, huh. But, <laughs> but he would also in front of people, um, you know, he would take me to people's houses when I was 12, 13 years old and just slap me in front of everybody and kind of, and then laugh with them about how, you know, I'm, I'm too little to fight back, you know? And, um, and then he would laugh about how he's going to beat the shit out of me when he get, gets home and they would all laugh along with the funny joke, but it, then it would really happen, you know? So I, I'm so sorry. So my dad would sometimes go downtown, get, he drank a lot. Right. And sometimes he would bring somebody home with him, you know, five, six times a year, he was bringing somebody home. Right. And most of the, most of the women down there wanted to, um, I, I'm not supposed to move. I like the, you know, I'd like to turn around and have the trees behind me. That's most fine. of the time, most of the time, my, uh, the women that, uh, that were downtown in those bars that were likely to go home with somebody like my dad, there were women who were, um, who were downtown because they were, um, addicted to heroin. And, and so, you know, they'd want my dad to pick up some heroin for them often. Um, and my dad wasn't as attracted. There were a couple of women who were into speed, but he didn't, he didn't like them. He, what he liked was to be on speed with a woman who was, oh, you know, maybe on heroin, but he liked it if they just wouldn't do any drugs, but it was hard for him to talk them into doing that because why would they come have sex with him if he wasn't going to buy their heroin for them? Because that's why they're downtown was to get that heroin. And mostly they were having sex with people to get it. Right. So that's, that's old town Eureka. That's how it, you know, it used to be um, a lot of that anyway. um, And, and, you know, probably still is, I mean, people that, you know, it's not like the, the, the sex for drugs trade went away, but, um, but that was how my dad would, you know, meet women and, um, and Sandy, um, well, so there was this woman I'd met before her name was April and she had been out to the house before. And I, you know, I don't, I'm not sure if, if uh, she had sex with my dad or enough sex cause he wasn't really interested in bringing April again. And I do remember April being a little pushier about her boundaries, you know, like she took up space when she came out to my dad's house and, um, space I didn't know how to take up you know she was voicing what she wanted and she was voicing if she wasn't happy about the way the visit was going and um and and she would get happily taken home very early usually when when he brought her out so if he could meet he was looking for somebody else you know somebody that um probably somebody like Sandy so this one time he brings home April and Sandy with you know you know they they drop by they pick up the heroin i'm waiting in the car right so it's my job i'm the driver so when i was in high school as soon as i had a driver's license three four nights a week i'm sitting in my car until midnight or 2 a.m while my dad's in the bar because then i can drive him home and he doesn't get a dui and it gave me an opportunity to do my homework anyway um so Sandy and uh, my dad comes out of the, the bar with Sandy and, and April. And uh, then I drive them to the place where they're going to buy drugs. They buy the drugs. 
And then, and then I drive them all back to the house and I go to bed, you know, because I got to go to school in the morning. Right. And uh, Sandy and April were there for a couple of days, maybe, but the drugs were running out and April didn't want to do this anymore. April wants to get on with her, you know, so let's go home. And so they, my dad takes them into town, but then comes back with Sandy. Sandy decided she wanted to stay. And, you know, my dad has 13 acres. I've got a horse, you know, um, and every girl that he had ever, you know, I'd seen him hit a number of women that he brought out and I was getting hit all the time, but I always kind of thought of them as these isolated events. Like, you know, yeah, you know, my dad used to hit my mom, but I don't want to, I don't know why he wants to tell me about it. And yeah, he hits me all the time, but you know, I did mess up all those times technically. So, you know, like. I never, I didn't think that I was in a situation with, with an abuser who was going to keep hitting people, you know, <laughs> I didn't know that was the deal. I thought, Oh, he's going to stop. You know, this is, this is probably the last time. And, and with the women, like I would believe he would tell me, have these heartfelt talks about how he just, you know, misses my mom and wishes he'd been a better husband and wishes he'd let her had all the kids she wanted. And, and, you know, why can't I find a good girl, you know? And I'd be like, yeah, Pop, I hear what you're saying. You poor guy, you know, hope you find the right girl. And so he was so happy with Sandy. And Sandy was enjoying being out there, as far as I could tell. They were a happy little couple. And for the first time in in these years that I lived with him, he suddenly didn't want me around and didn't care where I was. He just wanted me to leave. So I would get in my car and leave and I'd never had this freedom before. Right. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know what to do with myself. I didn't know where to go. I didn't know who to, who to talk to. I could have gone to my grandmother's house and visited her, but I had like this pressure of, I've got to start my life. I've got to go out here and be me in the world. And I don't know who that is or who that's supposed to be. Um, and And then, um, and then my dad had beat Sandy up and couldn't let her go because of the bruises. And it was just like, it felt just like with Patty, you know, which had been just like six months before that. So this is awful. How he, he put her in the stump, right? Because he couldn't let her go. Right. He needed Patty's bruises to heal. Um, because my, my dad was a career criminal. He had a lot of violent crime in his history. We are trying to get Humboldt County authorities to just cooperate with us and give us some, um, some, you know, I don't need to know their investigative secrets. I'm just hoping to know what dates did he get arrested for things? What did he get charged with? What was he convicted with? That's all I want to know. I'm telling the story. And if they don't help, I'll have to just make stuff up. And so far, it's looking like a community-wide conspiracy to make me eat it because they were all too scared to confront him and deal with him. And when they had a chance to put him in prison, they fucked it up. They fucked it up big time. So anyway. Multiple times. But I don't want to tell the story that way, and I don't mean to be vaguely threatening. (laughs) But I'm going to do what I'm going to do. You know, we're going to do what we got to tell it. We got a story to tell. And uh, so it's hard for me to put together the dates. I don't exactly know when my dad went to prison. 
I know I was around eight and then I was around, I was 10 or 11 when he went back in again for the stuff with, with uh, Nina. And that's what we're talking about when he got out when I was 12 or almost 13 after um, violently beating Nina and then getting acquitted on all six charges because the district attorney tried to pin stuff on him and it, that wasn't um, fair or, or right. And his, my dad, my, his parents, my grandparents got him the best attorney money could buy. And that attorney was able to expose the, um, the local prosecutor as not dealing completely fairly and, and put that idea in the jury's mind. And the jury thought, Oh, this poor guy's getting set up. And then my grandparents also, you know, paid the, the pastor to come lie. And so you've got a pastor of a Baptist church, man of integrity in the community saying this woman's a liar. You know, I mean, it's just, it reminds me a lot of the Katanji Jackson Brown hearings, you know, like Mm -hmm. we, our society freely just condemns the woman, you know, Um, was Mike Pence qualified to be a vice president? Who knows, but we're going to have a discussion about whether or not Kamala um, Harris slept her way to the top. You know, that's yep. just, that's how we, you know, America approaches these things. And, and they're not going to do the same yeah. for Mike. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. So anyway, so that was all. Uh, yeah. How is sexism related to all this? Well, oh, every, every part of it, <laughs> but continue. So my, my dad, you know, he beats Sandy up. And he doesn't want to let her go because he doesn't want to have to go to jail, right? Like if she leaves and then shows the police the bruises, he could have to go to jail and fight another case. And maybe grandma, you know, isn't as keen on paying for his attorney this time around. You know, she's been resistant. She's, I always saw my grandmother pushing back against my dad, you know, and I know that a lot of, I know her big drive with me was to try to press on me to be as gentle and nonviolent as possible because she was so afraid that I would end up like acting like Ernie, you know, yeah. which, which would have been nightmarish. And I, I think she did a much better job on me. <laughs> Maybe I was a different person being on with, but anyway, my dad beats up Na- uh, Sandy and that was just like, well, that just happens. And I remember how it started. Um, he, I came home and he was interrogating her about whether or not she had, because he had talked to some guy downtown who had told him, oh, you're with her? She's She's been with everybody. And guys do that, you know? Um, and um, and so my dad was like, oh, have you been with everybody? You know, and there was a certain uh, um, sexual activity that they had said that she engaged in with, with all the guys. And my dad was like, oh, do you do this with all the guys? And she was like, no, I don't do that with all the guys. And so we're riding in the truck and I'm driving and my dad's telling me drive, you know, down here and giving me directions. And he's, in t- he's questioning her and he's saying, we're going to, I'm going to go see this guy right now. I'm going to go talk to him and I'm going to ask, I'm going to find out the truth, find out if you did that with them, which is just did a sexual activity with these guys. Right. And and she's like, no, no, I don't know what, you know, what they're talking about. I don't know who those guys are. Just, you know, just drop it. And she's like, oh, and, and so we pull up and he has me park and it's down at the waterfront in this giant parking lot in front of an, a big giant warehouse that is currently used as a flea market. And so there's dozens of people who have little booths where they sell 
you know, garage sale items or collectible stuff or whatever they can find or order or, you know, some, anyway, whatever that's, so it's that kind of thing going on. And there's maybe a dozen cars there this day, the flea market's not open, but my dad pulls into the parking lot and he turns to her and he's like, this is your last chance, you know, to confess and tell me the truth because it's going to be way worse if I go find out that it's true. You know, he's trying to pressure her into breaking down and confessing that, Oh, and, you know, yes, you thought I, I loved you, but in fact, I did do the sexual thing with some other guy that you find ab- abhorrent and, and therefore, you know, you're right that I'm bad and, you know, whatever. I don't know what he was looking for from her, but it's, you know, he was messed up about that stuff in his head, right? So he goes in and as he's getting out of the truck, he looks past her at me and says, don't let her leave. And I'm like, what? What the fuck? I'm not... So inside, I'm having the battle, you know, because I always just do what he says with a limited number of exceptions. And so I'm feeling the exception rise. Like, there's no way that I'm going to try to detain this person or not let her leave. But she doesn't know that. And we're not talking. I don't know how to talk about this. I was horrified, you know. Um, But I'm thinking, well, she's either going to sit here because she doesn't want to leave. And it's none of my business. Or she's going to just slide over. And she's in the center seat, right? And I'm in the driver's seat in a bench seat in a truck. And I think, well, if she's going to leave, she'll just go for the door. And when she does, I'll watch her leave. And when my dad gets back, I'll be like, she totally left, dude, you know. And I'll just bear the brunt of, you know, no, I didn't stop her. But instead of her leaving, she she attacked me as if that's what she needed. She needed to beat me in order to leave. So she punched me and jumped across me and opened my door and we both tumbled out of the truck and onto the ground and I just laid back and put my hands back and she just she she was clenched onto me and she didn't let go and and then he shows up and pulls her off of me And starts dragging her around to the passenger side. And when this happened, there was a truck that had pulled up and an old man got out of it and he was about 50 yards away. And he started yelling out, hey, what's going, what's going on over there? And my dad said, get in the truck, Sammy, and drive. And I got in the truck. And I, you know, I hadn't fought back and I wished that I had. And I look back on that moment and boy, if I had fought back right then, you know, but I was just, but I didn't know how to fight back. And I, and I had already been wrestling with this and, and felt like a complete failure. And I just, I just drove the truck. I just did what I was told. Right. Yeah. So she sits down again. He sits there. We're back in the truck, peaceful drive home, but then he beat her. And then he can't let her go because she's all bruised up, right? Same story again. And I had to keep going to school. I had to keep looking like everything was normal. And what I didn't know is that um, 
you know, he was, he was still getting speed and, um, and then still going through beating cycles with her when I was not there. And I wasn't seeing her every day. And I don't really, you know, like it was such a horrifying time. Like I remember school kind of, I was at McKinleyville high. He moved me to our, from Arcata high to McKinleyville high after the thing with, uh, with Patty because, um, well, I think because he didn't want me to be around anything familiar. He just looked at me one day and said, I think it'd be good for you to get a fresh start. So I was, I, I was just done with the first quarter of my junior year at Arcata high. And I went to the office and said, I need to transfer to McKinleyville high now. And they transferred me because I lived where I, right on the line. So I was able to get them to let me do it. So I moved to McKinleyville high and I remember being there, but all of this was going on and it was, so all of my memories there are kind of filled with a, that dread of, of indecision, you know, what do I do? How do I, I've got to stop this. You know, like to me, it was bad enough that the, the Patty thing was happening again. Um, and, and I, I kind of, I felt like it was possible that he was going to kill her, but I kept shutting that down, you know, with, well, he let Patty go, you know, he doesn't really want to, you know, doesn't really want to kill anybody. Meanwhile, you're trying to learn geometry and algebra. Like. <laughs> yes. Yes. <sighs> <laughs> Oh, well, I had algebra two that year and I, I didn't, I remember not doing very well with it, but I got, yeah, um, because you're worried about your dad murdering people, like no fucking clue. It uh, has, it has a huge impact. Um, I, I graduated high school with a 3.83 grade point average. Sam. Wow. Wow. But that, Amazing. that junior, that junior year, yeah. I got all B's and C's. Those are my B's and C's that brought me down to 3.83. That's Okay. I did. I really, oh my God, I really did. Oh, anyway. um, Yeah. So, I mean, that was the thing with Sandy. Every time somebody mentions Sandy, the first thing I think of is being in the truck with them, riding over um, the Samoa Bridge. You're breaking up. Say that again. Be what? I remember being in the truck with them. Um, My dad was driving. We had an old, uh, he had a 69. Ford camper special with, um, with a big, big V8 in it. It was a big gas guzzler, like 10 miles to the gallon and, and, uh, two, two quarts of oil per day. Um, but we're driving in this truck and Sandy was in the middle, the center. And my dad had stopped by a, um, like a drugstore and she had picked up some Lee press on nails because she was chewing. She had always been chewing her nails and, um, and, you know, and he thought, you know, if you got these press on nails, maybe that would, you know, discourage you and you can have, you know, the pretty nails. And she was really into it. I was holding the pack for her and she was picking them out and, and gluing them on as we drove because she was so excited to get them on. Oh. Um, so like that's I remember that moment, you know, and a lot of the other moments like. I don't know how to piece together, like how many times I knew that he was interrogating her or had beaten on her or that's all kind of a, a horrible, horrible, um, scary place in my head. And I don't, 
I don't know how much I really remember. Um, I remember the feelings, though. Um, when you, I when you just... say that about the nails, though, like, wow. I'm, I'm like, moved. I want to cry. Because it's like I've had moments like that, too. I can relate to her so much. Mm-hmm. You know, so excited to put them on. Yeah, she was a really nice person. Sandy was really a sweet, sweet person. Very kind. And when my dad, you know, beat her and interrogated her, she very quickly just went to, okay, well, I see what you're saying. And I want to, I want to do better. You know, like she was just, she wasn't trying to, to fight, you know? Yeah. And, um, you know, her, her flaw was that she was into heroin, you know? And, and my dad was, and she met my dad. That was her. (laughs) Her mistake was, you know, which is not a mistake. I mean, it's just life, you know, and it's the, my dad is still the perpetrator and we didn't all do something wrong because this happened, you know, necessarily. (laughs) Um, mm, mm, Yeah. But one day eventually I came home and, and he had her sitting in a chair and, and this was, I, it was just days after I had sat with, my chemistry teacher and the vice principal at school, because I'd been acting up in chemistry class, like I'd been destroying stuff and they were very concerned and they were like, what's going on. And I almost, I was sitting there thinking, man, I, I should, can I tell them, you know, but I, I kept thinking like, well, what if I tell them and then they fuck it up and, and Sandy would have gotten released in a week or two, but uh, he hides her during the day maybe. And I don't know where, and these guys bumble in like Barney Fife and alert my dad that I'm going to tell. And then my dad knows, okay, get rid of Sam and Sandy at once. And now we're both dead, you know? So I just, in the moment, like I couldn't, I wasn't sure that they were going to succeed, you know, at helping me. And so I just didn't tell them. And it was just days later, I came home from school and my dad had Sandy sitting in a chair and he he wanted me to come and, and, and see and talk with him. And, 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 and so he's showing me that, you know, and she looked, she looked awful. Like she didn't look like she was there. She looked kind of like a zombie at this point. And, and he was snapping his fingers in front of her and she wasn't blinking. She wasn't reacting. She didn't look at me. She just stared straight ahead. And, and he told me to go get the car. And, and that's when like the panic really hit my conscious mind. Like, Oh my God, what, what do I do? What do I do? And I didn't know what to do. I didn't want to stall right there and say, Hey, are you thinking about killing somebody? Cause I could be a problem. You know, I, I did not want to be the problem in his mind. So when I had thoughts of like, Oh my God, the, we got to do something different, you know? She's got to get to a hospital. You need to go to jail. Like, I don't want him to know that I'm having those thoughts. Yeah. And so I just went to get the car and, and wrestled in my head, like, well, how, how do I do this? How do I turn this around? How do I save the day here? And I didn't know what to do. And I just drove the car around to the back of the house and he brought her out wrapped up in a blanket and put her in the trunk of the car. So we also had a car. We had a, a 64 Dodge, uh, Coronet 440, uh, two door, um, old, old, you know, classic 
pretty car, but kind of ugly. Anyway, he put her in the trunk of the car and then had me load tires and gasoline into the back seat. And we drove a half mile up the road to my grandmother's property, to the 80 acres that my great grandparents homesteaded, the old Christie home place. And we drove down toward the forest on the property, went in through the gate down to the forest and, um, and he crushed her skull and then put her in the ditch and had me help him put the tires and the gas on and light it on fire. And then we stood there and, and watched the fire. And I, um, I, st- I was standing there with him and, and uh, I was standing behind him and that fire was raging. It was a really foggy, overcast, drizzly day. So, you know, no one would really see the smoke. You know, the gray of the atmosphere was like down at the treetops. And yeah. so that black smoke was pumping up, but it was really hard. You know, it was, you know, in a, in a way kind of the, the perfect day to get away with that kind of thing. And... And he turns around and looks at me and he says, well, there's no way you're keeping this a fucking secret. And he just stared at me. And I felt like so helpless and so afraid. I just, I didn't know what to say. And when he walked back to the car, I walked with him. And when he got in the car, I got in the car with him. And he drove around for a little bit, about three or four hours. And then we drove back to the the site. And he wanted me to go down there and check to make sure that everything had burned up. And he didn't want to go all the way up to the ditch. I walked up to the ditch and I got a stick and started digging around in the ashes. And I realized there was a, there was her skull there. I could see the back of her skull. My God. And he said, can you see anything? And I just shuffled the ashes back over it. And I said, nope, it's all burned up. Because I thought, like, that's fine. I don't want to help him get rid of all the evidence. And maybe this, you know, anyway, I don't know. But I couldn't let myself think about it too much. Just in that moment, yeah. I just covered it up. I know I know that, that her bones are still here. And we got, we got back in the car. And... Uh, you know, and he was happy with, all right, it's all burned up. It's all gone. Um, I'm so sorry, Sam. What like are you I feeling can't... right now? Well, I don't know. I just see it. You know, I see what I was looking at and. And I feel um, it's hard to identify like an emotion. Uh, what I kind of feel when I, when I tell that is um, sort of a disconnection with my body. I feel like I'm floating. Yeah. Um, I know that's not really, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I feel anger. I feel, um, I feel a lot of fear and shame. And um, I don't know. I feel like shaking. Is that a feeling? Is feeling like shaking a feeling because I just felt like coming apart in that moment, you know? It's understandable. It's completely understandable. And what was it like going home that night? How are you handling things? What what was it like trying to go to bed or well, um I mean your dad had just murdered someone and then 
yeah, yeah. Them down, you know, and, and it, I want to remind everybody, you know, because even though it, we don't, we don't need to go into detail, detail, Sam did not murder her. It was Ernie mm-hmm. who did it, who hit her. I, I won't recount any detail you're not willing to share, but it was that's fine. You're, fine. You help, you're helping me tell it. That's fine. You know, I don't, um, Wow. Yeah. Um, and so that was chief in my mind was, is he going to kill me? That was my main, my main, when we went home, that was my main concern. Like what's about to happen to me? Yeah. And And, and had he said anything after that, you know, you said, he said, there's no way you're keeping this a secret. Mm-hmm. And then you drive back to see, can you see anything? Like, what else is he saying to you? So we, we got, he wasn't, he wasn't talking a lot, which really was making me nervous. Um, and he, um, we came home and, um, and he, um, he just sat down and started watching TV. And oh I thought, I thought I need to get ahead of this. So he's, he sits down on his couch in the living room. We had two couches and a big TV and a coffee table and kind of a dark living room. And he's sitting in there in the dark watching TV. And I went in my room and I was kind of in a panic. Like I've got to do something right. And he had this, um, or I had, he had this, uh, this needle point, this piece of art um, I have a picture of it around here somewhere. My, uh, my aunt June, uh, is in possession of it. So, um, it, she, and she's the one who made it actually. My mom designed it and, um, and drew it out. And it's, um, it's just Romans eight twenty eight um, with a, a, a tree. And, um, and so Romans eight twenty eight is written kind of in front of the tree, uh, in the, in the space between the branches and the roots, and it says all things for we know all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And at the bottom on the roots on one side, it says Claire and on the other side, it says Ernest. So it was something that she gave him as a gift. And my mom was always big on um, forgetting the bad and just doing the best with what we have now and so she was constantly you know forgiving him and you know putting her best foot forward to try to do the best she could going forward and she had given him this and it meant a lot to him so i'm i've got it hanging in my room right and i back then and so that day i'm looking at it on the wall and i took it down off the wall and kind of in an inspired moment i carried it out into the living room and i put it right in front of the tv in front of what he was watching and I stood there and waited for him to look at me. And, and he looked at me and I said, um, I said, Every, everything's forgotten. I don't know who was here or what happened. I don't have anything to share with any, anybody. All things work together for good. And I'm, I'm letting all of this go right now. And I don't know anything about it. Because that's what I thought. I thought he's got to be concerned that I am going to go tell somebody what just happened, right? Yeah. 
And so I'm trying to assure him I wouldn't ever tell anybody because I don't even know what happened. And I'm satisfied that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And he didn't, he didn't respond right away. There was a little bit of silence. And then he said, put it away, put it away. And so I carried the, the, the needlepoint back into my room and hung it up. And we didn't talk about it, but within a couple of nights, he decided that I needed to be sleeping on the couch and I was getting hit for any, anything, you know, like any little infraction, any little slip up in the car, he was backhanding me. He was really ramping up the control. So I was sleeping on the couch every night and I, um, it was, hmm. Oh my God. So he would still send me places, you know, send me to the store. Um, but of course he timed my trips and, um, and he had an idea in his mind of how many minutes it should take to drive to the store, get the things on the list, get back in the car and drive back. And if he felt like there was an extra five minutes, then he wanted to know if I had given one of his enemies a blowjob outside of the store, or if I was stealing his money, or what was I using that sinister five minutes for? And um, and I didn't know how to explain that I was, you know, having a little bit of confusion in the store because I was having PTSD flashbacks from horrible times at the store with him or horrible, horrible questioning after going to the store, you know? Um, and so it actually made me, it made it so much more difficult to go to the grocery store. And even now, like, I just hate going yeah. to the grocery store. Ah, I mean, I yeah. do it, but like, it just ramps me up anyway. So I was, I was having trouble. Like I was getting slapped. I was getting smacked around. And, and in my mind, I was having trouble giving him good enough answers or being able, you know, if I could just get better at my job, which was pleasing him, apparently, then I wouldn't have to get beat. And we could, I already told him I'm forgetting all about this Sandy stuff. I don't know why he's still harping on it, but those were, there were nights there. There was one night I woke up in the middle of the night and he, and uh, uh, the lights were on and I rolled over on the couch and he was sit, sitting on the other couch and he was fully dressed, had his boots on, had the rifle across his lap and had his jacket on. And, um, and he said, go back to bed. I'm still trying to decide what to do with you. So I understood that that meant that he was sitting there deciding whether or not to shoot me. And he'd already gotten the gun and put his boots on. Um, uh, but I just went back to bed and I started, um, I started memorizing proverbs every day and, and saying them to myself every night when I would lay down on the couch, I would just go through my proverbs that I'd memorized and I would, I would repeat until I fell asleep. I had, um, at the height of it, I had like 110 different passages from proverbs memorized that I would go through every night. And if I could get through all of them before I went to sleep, that was great. Um, and I thought that somehow if I really get these proverbs all in my head, then this will make me wise enough to know how to handle this situation with my dad. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure that there isn't a little hint of truth to that. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, I don't think it was the magical uh, fix that I was hoping for. Um, so um, those were really, really tense times. And... 
we i'm sure we went salmon fishing that year but i don't remember it i don't remember that year um very well it's like i those things happened in the spring and then i remember being a senior in high school and things were different it's understandable um, that you blocked out a lot. Right, right. So now, I don't I don't even want to know, really. <laughs> go go back. What was it like trying to go to bed that night? What was it like trying to mentally oh. be together? How were you keeping yourself together? Oh well I don't know. I don't know. I remember showing him Romans 8.28. And I remember that I slept in my room at least that first night. And then I just remember being on the couch. And I, I was used to sleeping well. Like I, for years, this had been the pattern. You know, I get one of these shame-inducing beatings it's, you know, it's not like he was, he would hit me and shame me and call me names and hit me again. And it was all part of a long multi-hour, you know, I just hope, can't wait for this to stop kind of a thing. And that happened over and over and over again. And every time I went to bed after a beating, I felt like... It felt as good as when you're in front of the altar and you've really had that good moment feeling forgiven by Jesus. Like no matter what I've done in my life as a Christian, I was always kind of worried that, oh, is that a sin? Is that a sin? If I've fallen short, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? But after a good beating, you feel like, wow, I've really paid the price. You know, like nobody can blame me. And I slept like a baby. I would lay down just like, oh, I'm good before God. I'm the one getting beat up, so I know I'm in the right. And, um, you know, and God loves me and and I'm forgiven and understood. And maybe even a little hint of maybe I needed punishment, and but now God's given it to me through my dad. And so I feel exonerated. And I would just lay down and just just fall right asleep. I slept so good. It's now that I don't sleep well as a, you know, as an adult, the last... 15 years trying to process this stuff i sleep worth shit my sleep is just fuck all and i'm not going to the sleep clinic and just just everybody leave me alone <laughs> just i don't i don't sleep well now and um but back then i did back then i really did and it was so so ironic you know to um have all those mixed feelings you know be grateful for the beating, um, feel, feel set free from the beating (laughs) and the beating is from the one who loves me, you know, and, and I still kind of remember, you know, I, I could never quite shake that, you know, part of me remembers being in the beating and that part of me says, this fucking sucks. This has to fucking stop. But after I got out of it, I could kind of quiet that part of me down with, well, it's over now. We got through it, you know, and, and oh, the dopamine rush of dad loves me again and isn't going to kill me. And now I can sleep and I don't have to feel guilty in front of God. Oh my God. It was a great rush. You know, my dad was doing meth. I was on my own, you know, um, sick 
drug regimen of, you know, emotional abuse and, and being trapped there, you know, but I, I would do anything just to try to keep that attachment so that my dad didn't kill me. And I felt helpless. Like if he were to say, I'm going to kill you, I felt helpless to fight against that. So, I mean, and, and I've told that story a couple of times, not in, you know, none of these stories in the full detail that I maybe like to someday, but it was a year after he killed Sandy or almost a year that he decided to kill me. And he took me down to the boat and he told me in the truck, like, I'm going to take you down to the boat and I'm going to beat you until you tell me all the truth. And then I'm going to kill you. And I said, okay, pop and got out of the truck and walked down to the boat with him. I was 17 years old. I didn't, I didn't want him to kill me, but I felt like he had the right to do that if he wanted to. I felt like there was, it would be wrong of me to run away or fight back or stop him or something, you know? Yeah. And that's because of what was ingrained into you. Yeah. 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 It's now, kind, of a, kind of a sick, uh, <laughs> sick yeah. dynamic. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Very toxic. Yes. <clears throat> what was it like after he died and coming forward with police? Like, how was it trying to get them to go out and, and recover Sandy? Well, before he died, I had started to have nightmares and flashbacks. Yeah. Um, so I was seeing her face, and I had told my um, my wife at the time about it, Laura, um, and I had told a counselor. Uh, but otherwise, I had, you know, kept it to myself and just started, kept, tried to keep charging along. And when he died, I did think I could come forward with this, you know. Um, but I also wasn't sure about it. And so I went and, you know, I asked people for advice. I I asked a priest who was a friend of mine. Um, He was a former priest. So he was an older gentleman that I'd talked to for advice, a mentor. And he said, Sam, don't, you know, I understand, but you're not going to help anybody going forward. And it's, you know, it's think it's going to be awful for your kids. And maybe it has been in ways, you know, I know that they've received, they've received some, some drama and, and, and conflict in their lives with their friends and friends' parents who found out about this stuff. But this priest, he, he, to, he told me he didn't, really didn't want me to go forward. And I met with him, but I, I still kind of felt like, yeah, but I kind of want to, you know. I kind of feel like maybe I should, you know. And I went to a pastor, and, and he also advised me not to. And then even after that, I I still wanted to. So I went and talked to a friend of mine who was an attorney. And he said, oh, Sam, don't do it. They'll prosecute you. You you get the wrong prosecutor who decides to prosecute you as an accessory. You were 16 years old and they will pin it on you and you'll go to prison for this stuff. And how will that solve anything either? And I had another count, a counselor. It was a Christian counselor, but I was meeting him for counseling. And I told him the story and he said, yeah, you need to go tell. You need to go tell right now. But then I told him more of the story. And when he learned how my dad had met Sandy, this, this Christian counselor said, oh, oh, she was just a, uh, just a heroin prostitute. Oh, well, maybe you don't need to tell anybody. And from all As if of that, that makes her less of a person. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. 
Well, it's already a woman we're talking about in America. So, you know, even though we don't say that, um, we, we, oh my God, I guess. Yeah. I don't know, man. America's weird. Anyway, I don't want to get off track. So, um, so all those people kind of, you know, it was enough to, to give me pause. Right. And so I, but I started charting my own path. I decided I didn't want to follow God anymore. I was telling you about this earlier. I, I decided that, um, if I was going to give my life to Jesus, I wanted to at least have my own life for a few days, be in charge of it myself for a change and then make that choice. You know, I, I wasn't, you know, I, you know, I wanted to kind of have the world and feel like I was giving something up to, and I wanted to come back to Jesus. But I, I had a time with God right after my dad died where I just said, look, God, I'm, I'm done following you. I'm going to live for me. I, I'm not, I'm going to do whatever sin I want to do. I'm not going to worry about what you think about anything. I'm going to live exactly how I want to. I'm just going to unleash my heart and just go get what I want. And the church had taught me that my heart is wicked and that God was helping me to not sin. And that if I didn't have God, I was going to go off the deep end following my own evil devices and the devil was going to have me. And I thought I might end up in a alley somewhere with a needle in my arm and a dead prostitute on my lap and not know how I got there. But this is the path I've got to take because I've got to find out who I am. And so I left God. I, I put him out of my mind. I left the church and I decided I'm going to live however I want. And within a year or so, I realized that in my heart, deep down inside, without any help from any God, I mostly want to have love and understanding and good relationships and I don't want to hurt people and I don't want to be violent and I don't want to take advantage of people. I, and I like to help people. I found out that that's who I am. It's not who Jesus was, was twisting me into, you know, it's just that, Mm -hmm. Oh no, I just, you know, and me, and, and I started thinking maybe, maybe all people are like this at some level and, (laughs) And, uh, and didn't, and we didn't need God. Um, so I, I turned away from God completely and, and I was happy to, and I was happy to discover that I wasn't plagued anymore by, by the sins that had plagued me when I was a Christian, you know, it didn't, it didn't hold any power anymore because nothing was against the rules for me. And if nothing was against the rules for me, then I didn't have that drive to go break the rules, you know? And then I could just follow my own and my own turns out are, are not, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm wrong all the time, <laughs> but I don't, I, I, I found out that I don't have to be afraid of, of me. There's a, I want to tell a, a story about that, that concept. Um, and it's sort of a total non sequitur, but um, I have four children and my second oldest um, had, uh, you know, gotten into some normal, you know, 12 year old breaking the rules kind of stuff. Right. But he he had gotten he had gotten caught um, and and I, you know, kind of forced a confrontation about the whole thing. And we were driving in the car later. And he had, you know, he said, you know, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to break those rules anymore. I I don't want to be that person. Um, And he looked upset. We were driving in the car and I, I asked him about why he was upset. And he said, I'm afraid that um I'm afraid of what's inside of me. Like, what if, 
what if I'm just the kind of person that's always going to be breaking rules and getting into trouble? And, and I'm looking at my son, you know, my, who I love. And I, I mean, I love all my children, but I'm, you know, I'm just feeling that love for him. And I don't want him to feel afraid of who he is because I think he's wonderful. Right. Yeah. And so I just told him. And when I, right in the middle of telling him this, I felt like, yeah, this isn't exactly true what I'm saying. It didn't feel right. It felt like a lie when I said, there's nothing inside of you that you need to be afraid of. Because I was afraid of all kinds of stuff inside of me. (laughs) But some part of my brain was like, no, you need to tell him that there is nothing inside of him that he needs to be afraid of. And in years that followed, he was able to tell me how much that meant to him, how that helped him to believe in himself and to make the right choices going forward. And it helped me too, because for the years that followed, every time I was afraid to look inside, every time I was afraid of me or what was inside my head or how, you know, my anxiety or whatever, I would remember saying that, you know, yeah, but you told Kate, you told your son that, uh, you know, there's nothing inside of him that he needs to be afraid of. And it took me a few years to convince myself that there was nothing inside of me that I needed to be afraid of. And, and now, even if I'm, I go to places in my mind and in my memories, like, like with Sandy, where there's so much feeling that I don't exactly know how to describe it. And if I re-enter into it, what I feel is just bodily panic, but I'm not afraid to feel those things. I'm not afraid to find that because I know that's in here. That's how I feel. That's how I'm always going to feel about what happened with Sandy. And that's okay. It's not a bottomless pit where I'm a bad guy at the bottom of it. That's the, that's the, the, the psychological mind fuck that I have to unpack from all of it, you know? And that's good. And I'm so glad that you're open to. Oh, well, I mean, I, of course, I mean, this is, this is, I don't have to pay you out of my own pocket like a therapist (laughs) we and we we have the potential to to even make enough money to get a new microphone by the way listeners if you're a loyal listener and you've been you know wishing that there was some way to support us um you know i'm not asking you to break the bank but if you feel like it we um i'm sure have a way that you can help us to get some better equipment we i'd like to get a a microphone on you cash app and we have a cash app that's right so please, if you felt like doing that, um, just take a moment and go to our our, um, our Cash App link, which should be on the... It'll be in this link. It'll be in this description. Frankly Earnest Podcast on Instagram or um, Frankly Earnest Podcast, or is it just Frankly Earnest on just TikTok? Just Frankly Earnest on TikTok, and then mm-hmm. our Cash App's Frankly Earnest. Yeah, yeah. I'm at the Velvet Brick on TikTok, but if you want to contribute specifically to the podcast, which I'm asking... Um, please, please just go to Frankly Earnest or Frankly Earnest podcast on Instagram and, and check our links. And then you can just, you know, whatever you feel like, you know, and, and if you send us too much, we're going to donate it to domestic violence survivors. I, you know, I don't know what to do with a bunch of money. You know, we're just regular people. We just want some mic- a microphone for Ali. We'll, we'll touch, we'll touch back on that note at the end of this. Yes. Okay. Because oh, there is oh. some, there is a donation thing that we're going to talk about but i do i do want to just wrap up a little bit with what it was like with police finding sandy and oh yes so it's 2009 i called them and i called the humboldt county sheriffs 
department and, and started uh, talking to them and, and they put me in touch with Detective Quinnell and he and I talked for a long time. And, and then I, um, and then he thought to ask, uh, well, do you, you know, you know, where, where exactly Sandy's body was burned? And uh, I'm like, yeah, sure I do. And I, I pulled up some old um, maps of the property that I had had drawn for um, for our timber harvest plan for logging on it. And um, and it showed the old county road and it showed the drainage ditch where dad had put Sandy. And so I circled the little area and described it and, and sent him this. I faxed him this stuff. And they went out and uh, I guess he called me a couple days later and he's like, oh, you know, we we searched all around, went up and down that whole ditch. I, we're not seeing anything anywhere in there that could be it. And, um, and so I like did a close up of the area and, and told him, look, it would be about 50 yards off of this County road. And it's only in the ditch. You don't have to search the whole area. It's just this, this line. And if you'll just start in this ditch and just work your way down, you will find it. And he called me back when they did. They had been in there for um, like three hours. And at this point, at the point that they were finding Sandy's remains, uh, I think they were already starting to rule me out as um, a uh, potential um, candidate for prosecution. Um, They were getting overwhelmed by calls from the community. It's around this same time that they were beginning to rule me out as a suspect. He hadn't told me this yet, um, that they were even considering prosecution against me, but they did ask me to go down to the local police department here in North Carolina. Um, so they had spoke with the police there, and I went down and, um, and gave them a DNA sample. And then they also uh, gave me a polygraph test. And, um, and that was all part of detective Quinnell trying to determine, you know, would they build a case against me as an accessory to murder? But I didn't know any of this. I was just, you know, kind of naively like, okay, well, you know, I'll just tell you what you want to know and we can talk about anything and I'm here to help, you know? So I'm helping them find these remains. And, um, and I guess they kind of weren't sure if I was just making up a bunch of lies Um, because when he called me and they had found nine teeth and, and, and part of a t-shirt, part of her t-shirt was preserved in that packed mud at the bottom of this ditch with these nine teeth. That's what he told me. Um, when they found that stuff, like he was expressing, oh, oh, so, wow, and now we know it's really true what you're telling us. Like, what, you didn't believe me all this time? And uh, even with Patty and the stump, I showed them on a map which little group of redwood trees on a satellite map, like these trees right here, these treetops, in the middle of those, coming up out of the ground, is this old-growth redwood stump. It's, It's like 10 feet in diameter, and it's up like 15 feet above the forest floor. It's an old growth redwood stump. And, and as many of them are, it was hollow in the center. And I built a platform at the top and put some, some, um, um, a huckleberry bush up on top to cover up the, the plywood. So it's just like a foot of, of, uh, forest debris and dirt and, and this plant, and then a plywood top in there. 
And they went out to that area, and I guess none of them wanted to climb up onto this stump. And I, I mean, I used to climb up there twice a day and climb up with Patty in and out, you know. Um, so he called and he's like, oh, we can't, you know, can't, there's no stump there. Can't, I, I don't know what you're talking about. And I insisted, and, you know, and redrew the map. And then they, he called me again. He's like, there's just one big old growth stump here, but we can't see how to get into it. You know, we can't figure that out. Um, but I insisted and assured him that, yes, that's definitely the stump. And they brought in a guy with a chainsaw to cut it open. They show that on the investigation discovery or the very, a uh, couple of those shows. And they brought this guy in and cut the stump in. So he had to cut a couple of times to get through the wall of the stump into the center. And there were the water jugs and the blanket and, um, you know, stuff that was down in the bottom of that stump, uh, where Patty had been kept. And then he really believed me. And then he told me that their office had been overwhelmed with calls from the community, that people from the community had been calling former law enforcement officials, uh, teachers, um, prominent people in the community calling in. And he said that their overwhelming message was, oh, yeah, that Ernie Christie guy was a nut and it fits that he would have done something like this. And how is Sammy? Is Sammy okay? And he even spoke with some of these people. He's like, what do you mean? Is, is Sammy okay? And, and he said, overwhelmingly, they, they all just praised me, spoke highly of, 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 of Sammy Christie um, and, and, and saw me as, you know, a fellow victim, um, you know, of my, of my dad's violence. And so that's when he told me that he had met with the district attorney and they had talked about it and, and that no one from, you know, from either of their offices was, was you're, interested you're- Oh, your video just cut out. Yeah. Yeah. My phone, my phone alert came up. I have to turn off alerts or something. We'll get better. (laughs) So that's when, that's when he told me that, um, that they had met and discussed it and the, the, uh, district attorney had no interest in prosecuting me Yeah. that they, you know, that they saw me as a, um, a fellow victim and a, um, you know, a helpful witness at this point. It definitely helped. It helped my case in that regard that I, you know, had, been able to lead them to these these sites for for proof you know and i had already sold the house um that my dad and i lived in and um you know it's funny i don't think detective quinnell i don't think they followed up any leads besides the ones i gave them you know like there wasn't much detective work you know like um and i you know who wants and i wouldn't want them to disrupt the people's lives who own the house now, but if they didn't replace the subfloor, Sandy's blood is in that master bedroom soaked into that subfloor. Oh. I mean, if anybody ever needed to verify it, I sold that property and, and the couple that came out to look the the woman had met me and we'd been talking for a couple of minutes and she just looked right at me and she said, what happened here? And I said, what do you mean? She said, I, I'm so sorry, but I can tell some really bad things happened here. Are you okay? And she just came over and gave me a hug. So spontaneous. Oh um, and, uh, and she kept pressing. She's like, you know, I just need to know what to do. Do I need to burn some sage when we come in here? And I said, yes, please burn lots of sage. Whatever it is you do, do all of it. But I didn't tell them the, you know, the details. And, you know, yeah. anyway. So I feel bad a little bit, but I mean, 
Did That's Ernie life. die at home there? Yes, he did. Oh, yeah. Burn all the sage. But I've been, I've been back there and visited. Um, very nice people. Um, and, um, and I went back and visited and the, the gentleman uh, took me around and, and showed me what he had done with the property. And, and it's unrecognizable. Like he redid everything and re-landscaped everything and he turned it all into a little park. It's so beautiful. And that it was so healing for me because if I had kept that property, you know, I just would have kept all those memories and all those things and I wouldn't have known. Yeah. I wouldn't have known how, how to get rid of things. But because he wasn't attached to any of it, he was able to just come in and just plow it all down, burn it all to the ground, start over. Sam, I, I, wow. Every time we talk about this, like I cry, I, oh, I go through all the emotions and I just feel for you. I want to hug you and I feel so bad. Thank you for talking about it. Well, you're welcome. And thank you. Thank you, Allie, for talking about it with me. And, and thank you to you uh, who are listening. Um, because you're the other part of this. Yeah. <laughs> Allie could only take so much of me telling her this if we weren't <laughs> doing a podcast, you know? <laughs> if I was just calling Allie up, hey, you want to hear more? <laughs> you know, Allie's got her own plate of stuff to handle without being my psychotherapist. <laughs> well, anyway, thank you for being here and listening to the podcast because doing this podcast, you listening, Allie, you listening too, and us talking and this helps me to do it. This helps me to get through it. This helps me also to put it out there and not be alone with it. And there's like the super bonus that I didn't even realize how powerful it would be when I started this. The super bonus of all of you that I hear back from who feel braver about looking inside or telling your story or standing up for yourself, like do it. Yes. Oh my God. And I'm with you. I'm so with you. Did I, and I told you too, and I don't know if we said it on the podcast, but I recently got to speak with one of Sandy's family members. Yeah. And um, he's out West and it's, it's her nephew and he grew up with her. So she was a little bit older than him. And, um, and they, and he shared some stories with me, but one of the most amazing, the most amazing thing was he expressed understanding for what I've been through and um, compassion for me. And I had been worried from the time I came forward, whenever I hear uh, negative comments or criticisms or, you know, there, there are these people that hear my story and their reaction is, oh, my God, Sam is the problem. Someone should go over there and drag him out into the street behind a pickup truck and do America a favor. Like they write stuff like this or say stuff like this, or, you know, the lady on TikTok, like you must've enjoyed being there, you know? And I was so afraid that Sandy's family would feel that way about me. You know, even though I had come forward in hopes of, you know, alleviating their, their mystery about it and also getting it off my chest. Um, I was really nervous about that. So it was so healing and, and joyful for me to, have have this person receive me as a fellow human being and say no no i'm just grateful that you're telling the stories and uh, and he even offered to share with me some of sandy's writing 
Sandy had done a lot of, of writing as a young person and he had uh, access potentially to some journals. But I wanted to share that that had happened. That's so big for me, like right now in 2022, <laughs> all these years later to, to be able to have a conversation with this person and, um, and, and, and receive compassionate understanding from them for me, you know? Now, I I want to say rest in serenity and peace with Sandra Turpin. Sandy, there's no words that we can say that will ever do justice or anything no. close to what you deserved for a life, but we can only hope that the message that comes from this is, is that we have to do better for yeah. Sandy. Yeah. In remembrance of Sandy. Yeah. And, yeah, we do. And I'm yeah, so sorry do. to the family as well. I'm really, I'm really so sorry. It's, this I, is not, this doesn't have anything to do with Sandy, but I just think it might be time to give this to you because this is a lot to share. And this is, this is a lot to go through and, and recount and, um, Sammy should have left it there somewhere for you. Oh, um, oh, oh, there is something on the table. Only open silver package with Allie's permission, it says. You have Allie's permission. And I, you're just going to see my face as I'm, I'm wrapping. Here's the package. I'm just going to do this up in the air above you. It's something Perfect. that's it's been framed. I, I can feel that it's a frame. So I want to tell you what this is. So a okay. listener, one of your listeners here who loves the podcast, Megan. I don't uh, know if I can say her last name. Megan made this for you. What? Um, really? She made yeah, it for me? She made it for you. Oh, that is and so Sammy special. And Sammy helped. And Sammy went to the store and got something for me for it. Oh, it's art. It's art. I might cry. Are you seeing it? Almost. Oh. Oh. That's beautiful. It's a drawing of my mom. It is. And it's that picture. Um, the one that has the coffee stains on it. Yeah. We were talking about it, and we just wanted you to have one that didn't, and that you could hang up. And all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna put it on screen. Oh, that's beautiful! I love the frame too. Sammy did good. It's just yeah, floating. Sammy did so good. So I told Sammy just to get this plain black one, and she called me. She's like, "Listen, I don't know. I see this floating one," and I was like, "Sammy, you know me, God. You know me well. Oh. Get floating one. She was wonderful." I love it. That is so nice. And this is from, this is from Megan. Megan. Thank you, Megan. I, Megan, I hope you're, I hope you're listening. Megan's an artist. Yes. And I wanted to pay Megan. I got you. I got you. Megan won't accept my money. And so I said, well, let's donate what you would, what I would pay you. Oh, I see. I see. And she, she was like, oh, I have a really hard time picking a good place to, to have the money donated to. Oh. And she's like, well, have Sam pick the place we should donate it to. So. Okay. Well, then I want to donate to um, 
uh, Shirley Rains and Beauty to the Streets. I, th- I thought you might say that. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. Shirley um, um, uh, it feeds and organizes um, events to feed and and supply the homeless people in LA. With um, just stuff they need for life, and also stuff they need for self-respect and to feel valuable, and you know, um, and put together. And she does amazing, amazing, tireless, thankless work out there. And um, I mean, she gets a little bit of thanks for it, but um, anyway, yeah. So um, I'm excited! Yay! So thank you, Megan. That is so, I'm so grateful for this and I'm glad Sam liked it and we're going to donate to Shirley. Do you have anything you want to say, Sam? Close us out. Oh, well, um, hmm. Well, I told, um, Sandy's uh, nephew that I'd be happy to answer questions or, or talk about it. And, um, and so if you have, further questions about what happened with Sandy or what it was like for me or um, I, I welcome those um, so if you if you write to us um, and um, and offer offer your your thoughts or questions um, we can do our best to address those in future episodes I'm happy to talk about Sandy so even though this has been really hard I um, and I'm sure hard to listen to for people um, I want to thank you all for being here you too Allie and me too. I came too, so we're going to thank me too. And um, and thank I think you. We're all thanking you. <laughs> thank you so much, Megan, for um, for the drawing of my mom. Um, I've got it back here with some some photos that I want to put up on the wall um, behind where where we do the the, the, the video oh, casting. I love it. And um, yeah. Um, and I mean, yeah. You know, I don't know. I I would like to eventually collect. Um, my mom's art uh, as much as I can. I know that a lot of it is out there. And even if I could just borrow from people, um, you know, if I can get enough word out, then I can put together a showing maybe out in California with my mom's art, um, take over one of the galleries and, um, you know, and a piece like this would fit in that kind of display too, you know? Yeah. So um, anyway, um, that would be that would be cool. But for now, I'm just going to hang on to it and, and cherish it. And I really, I really appreciate it. Thank. It's very touching to me, and it tells me, you know, that that it touched uh, Megan's heart enough to want to create that. And thank you, Allie, for for putting that together. And I'm going to have to thank Sammy when she comes back. She yes, headed out with. Do. She was huge in helping with this. So thank thank you, Sammy. Seriously. Thank you thank all. Thank, I love you. Thank, thank you, you all. Of you. I feel I feel so appreciated. So yes, she's pretty great. I love her too. <laughs> I might love her more than you know. I think that's I think okay. I I'm not. No, I'm just you know, kidding. I used to be a jealous lover, but you know that's okay. There's plenty of love to go around, and it's and we all need it. So that's good. That's Thank truth. you, everyone, for listening to this episode, and we'll see you next week. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Allie. Love you, mean it. Love you, mean it. Rest in peace, Lysandra, Sandy. Turpin, we will not let you be forgotten. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Frankly Earnest. You can now support the podcast by visiting anchor.fm slash 
frankly earnest slash support. Be sure to visit our Instagram for daily updates and posts for our links at Frankly Earnest Podcast. You don't want to miss out on Sam's TikTok at The Velvet Brick. See you next week. Thank you.